Chapter Five of Judith Lee, Pages from Her Life, by Richard Marsh. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Miracle. People sometimes say that they envy me because, with my power of reading thoughts, that they say is what it comes to. I must have so many opportunities of doing people good. It must be so sweet, they add, with what I occasionally feel to be an irritating smirk to be able, with very little trouble to oneself, to benefit one's fellow creatures. That sort of remark is very easy to make, but it is not easy to benefit one's fellow creatures. And, as for doing people good, it is surprising how many people would rather not be done good, too. Take the case of what happened at Dieppe. I was spending my summer holidays at Dieppe. I had been there about a fortnight. One evening I was sitting, all alone by myself, on the terrace outside the casino. I had been dancing, my partner had gone to fulfill another engagement, and, as I was not engaged for that dance, I had asked him to leave me where I was. I was taking my ease in a long chair close to the sea wall. In front of me, in the glow of the electric light, people were seated at little tables having refreshments. At one of these was a gentleman whose name I knew, talking to one who was to me a complete stranger. The first gentleman's name was Armitage. Cecil Armitage. He was an amazingly handsome young man, perhaps in the late twenties. He was staying in my hotel, and he was the cause of no little amusement to some of the other visitors. He, a young man of seven or eight and twenty, evidently of birth and breeding, was paying the most marked attention to a woman who was one of the greatest jokes in Dieppe, Miss Drawbridge. Miss Drawbridge, commonly known as Gertrude, to people who had never spoken to her in their lives, was a sort of standing dish at Dieppe. She was supposed to have been there longer than the oldest inhabitant. She had certainly been a frequenter for quite a number of years. What I had seen of her I rather liked. She was staying at my hotel, and there was a time when she had asked me to share her table, and although that time had passed and she never asked me to share it now, we were still on quite good terms. She was certainly a curious person, people who haunt the same foreign watering place year after year generally are, and what an extremely presentable young man like Cecil Armitage could see in her was a mystery, unless it was her money. Imagine the sensation which stirred the air when it became known that this perfect Adonis was engaged to Gertrude. Had not Miss Drawbridge announced the fact herself, I fancy few people would have believed it. And the things which were said of Miss Drawbridge, especially by some of the women, the men just sneered. There was I on the terrace, in my long chair. I could say things about men, but I think I had better get on with my story. And there was Mr. Armitage, drinking what looked to me very like absinthe. Fancy drinking absinthe at that time of night, or so far as that goes, at any time, and talking to a perfect stranger. Of course, the man was quite entitled to be a stranger, but I have seldom seen a man whose looks I liked less. The contrast between him and Mr. Armitage was amazing. He was a sallow, hatchet-faced man with an upturned mustache, which I hate, and something the matter with one of his eyes which made him seem to be looking in two directions at once. Nor did I like his manner towards Mr. Armitage. He seemed to be positively bullying him. That was one reason why I watched what they said, and some very surprising observations, I cannot say I heard, I saw, and as always is the case on such occasions, I could not have gained a more intimate acquaintance with them had they bawled them in my ear. The first thing I saw was the stranger's thin lips contorting themselves as, in what I imagined to be an angry undertone, they formed these words, which I have no doubt, judging from the expression of his face, he snapped out at Mr. Armitage as if he were an angry terrier. Don't you make any mistake about it, my boy. I've not come over to Dieppe to be fooled with. I'm either going to have you or the money in four and twenty hours. If I have to have you, it will be penal servitude, and then the smile will come off that pretty face of yours. Mr. Armitage was not smiling at that particular moment, as anyone could see. On the contrary, he looked very much disturbed. The way in which he leaned across the table helped me to realize the earnestness which I felt sure was in his voice as he replied to the other's threat in words which, as I saw each fresh one shaped on his lips, surprised me more and more. Don't be absurd, Clark. I can't perform the impossible. 
I can't get it in four and twenty hours, but you shall have your money with a thumping interest if you'll only give me reasonable time. And pray, what do you call reasonable time, my beautiful forger? It won't take very much to make me break this glass against your face, Clark. You may have the whip hand of me, but I'll break your neck before you get a chance of laying the lash across my back. I held my breath, expecting every moment to see something dreadful happen. The way Mr. Clark snarled back at him. That's the tone you take, is it? You talk to me like that again, and I'll have you jailed tonight. Do you think you can both rob and murder me? I say you're a forger. Forger, forger. Now you touch me with a glass or anything else if you dare. This will be the last time that you ever show yourself in a decent place if you do. There was a pause. Mr. Armage leaned so far forward that I quite expected that he would take the other by the throat and strike him with his glass. I was just on the point of jumping up and doing something which would divert his attention, when he seemed all at once to change his purpose, and leaning right back, positively laughed. What nonsense it is, Clark, our talking like this. You'll do no more good by calling me names than I should by knocking you down. I tell you, you shall have your money with thumping interest if you'll wait. I know a good deal about you, my lad, about all there is to learn, but I don't know where you're going to get anything like that amount of money from unless you found someone else to rob. I thought Mr. Armitage would resent this remark as he had done the others, and I believed that for a moment it was his intention to do so. But again he changed his purpose, and I saw these remarkable words come from his lips instead. I found, I found a woman. It was not strange that Mr. Clark looked at him as if he wondered if he was in earnest. Then he asked with a smile which made him an even more unpleasant-looking person than before, what woman have you found this time? If you are suggesting, as you appear to be, that I have ever robbed a woman up to now, I can only inform you, Clark, with all possible courtesy, that you are a liar. I have not always treated women well, few men have, but no woman has ever suffered in pocket because of me up to the present time of speaking. That's between you and your conscience. Who is the woman you propose, according to your own statement, to rob at the eleventh hour? It is the woman I intend to make my wife. Oh, so there is a woman you're going to make your wife at last. What about... I do not know what he was going to say. Mr. Armitage stopped him so suddenly and positively shook his fist in his face. Stop that, Clark. Don't you mention any names. You keep your tongue between your teeth. I'm going to marry the woman I'm going to marry because I'm a thief, because I'm such a cur that I shrink from paying the penalty. She's a wretched old fool who comes all to pieces. Heaven knows what's left of her when the various aids of beauty are put away for the night. But she's got money, and she's willing to give me money, enough to be rid of you and save myself from the treadmill. That's why I'm going to enter the bonds of holy matrimony, and that's a perfectly frank confession. Franker, I dare say, than most men make in similar circumstances. This sounds as if it were going to be a marriage of real affection, a genuine love match. The sneer which was on Mr. Clark's face as he said this, the indescribable look which was on Mr. Armitage's as he replied, If you only knew how I hate the woman, how every pulse throbs with loathing when she comes near me. He gave what seemed to me to be a great sigh. As I live, it's a comfort to say that to someone. It makes me ill to be in the same room with her. Got to that stage already. Heaven knows how far it will go by the time we're married. I shouldn't wonder if I were to murder her on our wedding night. Is that so, really? What a honeymoon you'll have if you do. Is the lady young? Young? I shouldn't care to ask her age for fear of the depth of the lies she'd tell me. She's at least old enough to be my mother, my grandmother, for all the woman that's left in her. What a very charming couple you will make, full of vivacity. Has the lady physical charm? She never had. I tell you she takes all to pieces nowadays. She is one of those women the ladies' papers always suggest to the masculine mind. She gets her hair from one of the persons advertised in the back pages. Her complexion from some wretched harridan whose advertisement is to be found a page or two in front. Her figure from a person the editor specially recommends at so much a time, and her teeth from the Lord knows who. She's a regular specimen of love's young dream. Is she really? 
She must be a walking nightmare. What is the fortunate lady's name? I take it she has tons of money. Her name is Drawbridge, and she has, at any rate, enough money to pay you, Clark. I hope there will be a little left for you when I am paid. I do really, my dear boy. Well, there may be or there mayn't, but I'm marrying her to get the money to pay you, and that's the whole plain truth. Mr. Armitage was about to rise from his chair when the other leaned right over the table and stopped him. One moment, Armitage, one moment. When are you going to touch that money, eh? I can't tell you the exact day now, can I? I only proposed to her yesterday. It was your telegram that brought me to the sticking point. I'm afraid I shall have to push you a little beyond the sticking point. I'm in a hole myself. I'm pressed for money. I've got to find at least five hundred pounds in four and twenty hours. Is that true? Perfectly true. I shall be in a very inconvenient position if I don't, and it's got to come from you. You'll be in a more inconvenient position than I shall if it doesn't, so that's plain. I've come all the way to Dieppe to make it clear to you that it is plain. Can you get me five hundred pounds out of your fair lady between this and tomorrow night? If you can, I'll wait a few days for the rest, but five hundred I've got to have before I go to bed tomorrow night. Or, you know the alternative if I don't. The engagement will be off. I don't suppose even she will want to marry you after you've done a term of penal servitude. There's something else. I should like a hundred tonight. I haven't ten pounds left in the world. I'm practically broke. I've been losing steadily ever since I've been at this place. Then it looks as if you'll have to get a hundred for me and a bit over for yourself. I've got to have my hundred and the other four tomorrow. Mr. Armitage looked steadily at the other, seemed to see something in his face which made it clear that he meant what he said. A grim look came on his own face as I saw him say, I'll see what I can do. You'd better. Where's the lady? Punting, in the club, playing baccarat. Then you'd better cut off to the club as fast as ever you can, and take her by the scruff of the neck and squeeze that hundred out of her while she's got it to squeeze. After you're married, you're not going to let her play baccarat with your money, are you? She'll make a pauper of you if you don't take care. You mind your own business and leave me to manage my matrimonial affairs after my own fashion. Mr. Armitage got up from his chair. Where shall I find you? At the hotel or here? You'll find me all over the place, my lad. Don't you make any mistake. I'm not going to lose sight of you till I've got my money, or got you in jail. You can go, but just you understand I shall be close behind, and I'm not the only one who'll be close behind you either. If you keep looking over your shoulder, you'll see two or three friends of mine. Mr. Armitage took himself off, with an air of indifference which was very well done. He could not have had a very careless feeling in his heart. Almost immediately, Mr. Clark followed with the evident attention of dogging his steps, and I was left alone, nearly overcome by feelings which were altogether indescribable. What on earth was I to do? It was no business of mine, this affair of the old maid and the young bachelor. She must have known what a risk she was running when she agreed to his preposterous proposal. If, by what I will call an accident, I had become acquainted with facts which made the gentleman's position in the matter abundantly clear, still it was no concern of mine but it was no use my talking to myself like that i could not allow a person of my own sex to enter into what i knew would be a hideous marriage without making some attempt to lay before her the facts upon which my knowledge was based in other words here was one of those opportunities for doing good of which people were so fond of talking and if the thing was in my power good should be done i got up from my seat and went in search of miss drawbridge finding her as I expected, in that part of the building which is found in every French casino, and which, I presume ironically, is called Cercle Preve, as if it ever is, in any sense of the word, a club, or has anything private about it. She was seated at one of the baccarat tables, and I could see at a glance that she was winning. She had quite a quantity of banknotes in front of her, and kept adding to the store. Presently the bank was closed, and the players rose. Miss Drawbridge rose, too, with her spoils and a white satin handbag. As she moved toward the door, Mr. Armitage came into the room, with Mr. Clark not very far behind him. When he accosted her, I thought, as I suppose everyone else did in the room, 
what an extraordinary couple they were, to think that they were ever going to be married. I saw him ask her with an attempt at a smile, Well, what luck? How many banks have you broken? Her back was towards me so that I could not see her answer, but I guessed what it was from his rejoinder. That's great news. I fancy he hesitated. Would he have the assurance to ask for that hundred pounds from Mr. Clark without a moment's warning? He approached the subject by what I suppose he meant to be a delicate way. I'm awfully glad you've had a bit of luck, because the fact is, it's all the other way with me. I can't do anything right. And between ourselves... I saw him hesitate again. I imagined that the decent man which was in him made it difficult for him to ask a woman for money when it came to the pinch. What she said I could not see, but I conceive of her as saying, struck by his hesitation, Well, and what is it, between ourselves? He made a stumbling effort to explain what it was he wanted. You know, it's like this. I'm awfully pushed for coin. If you could manage to lend me, say, a hundred out of those winnings of yours. She cut him short. I could not tell with what words, but her hand dived into her white satin bag just as they passed through the swing door out of sight. Two or three minutes afterwards, when I returned to the casino, I saw in the crowd round the little horses, Mr. Clark sidle up to Mr. Armitage. Both their faces were in plain sight. I could see Mr. Clark ask, Well, have you got it? Has the sweet young thing been kind? Mr. Armitage turned away, as if the other's jibe had roused him to sudden anger. But I saw him hand his companion something as he moved away, and I knew what it was. A few minutes later, I saw Mr. Armitage again, going towards the club. He was addressed by a fat, florid-looking man with an exaggerated mustache. A mustache sometimes screens a man's mouth almost completely, but his was so formed that, despite the absurd dimensions of that herstute adornment, I could see his lips distinctly. He said to the man he had stopped, with what I fancy was an evil gleam in his bold bloodshot eyes, I'm sure Mr. Armitage has a five-pound note which he can spare for an old friend who's a little on his uppers. Mr. Armitage recognized him with what was evidently not a start of satisfaction. So it's you, Morgan, is it? What on earth are you doing here? I thought you were... Mr. Morgan raised his finger to his lips to prevent the other bringing his sentence to a close. Quite so. We won't say where. How about a five-pound note, Mr. Armitage, for a very old friend? Mr. Armitage looked at him angrily for a few seconds, then grabbed something out of the pocket of his dinner jacket, which might have been a hundred-franc note. He thrust it into the other's hand, and without waiting for a word of thanks, went quickly on. Mr. Morgan looked at what he had been given, then he looked after the door. The expression on his face was not that of a grateful man. I found Miss Drawbridge sitting at the very table on the terrace which had been lately occupied by Mr. Armitage and his friend. As I took the chair in front of her, she said to me, That's right. Come and talk to me, and have something. She herself was having some curious concoction in a big glass. For me, she ordered a lemon squash. I've had a good night, my dear. It seems as if I can't lose a baccarat lately, as if my luck had turned. I'm sure it's about time it should. You look a little moped. What's been troubling you? I considered for a second or two. Then I approached by degrees to make the plunge. I approached the subject by what I meant to be round-table fashion of my own. I've just heard something rather disagreeable. Have you? That's easy. The difficulty is to learn anything else. Is it private or for publication? I've just learned that a man who I thought was rather a decent sort is a thief and a rogue, and two or three other things which are rather worse. When you've had my experience of life, my dear, which heaven forbid you ever will, you'll know that that sort of thing is quite common with a man. You must take a man at his own valuation, my dear. We should never get one at all if we took them at ours. This man is not only going to marry a woman for her money, but because he doesn't know where he will get the money from if he can't from her, and if he doesn't get her money at the earliest possible moment, he'll be sent to jail. He's a thoroughly all-around bad lot, the man is, though he doesn't look it. Miss Drawbridge had her fish-like eyes. They always looked as if they had been boiled. Fixed on me with a watery stare. What's the gentleman's name? I knew from her manner that, 
as the children have it in their game, she was getting warm. Does it begin with the first letter of the alphabet? I'm afraid it does. What have you found out about Mr. Armitage? Stay. Before you speak, I ought to tell you that what you say will in all probability be repeated to him, and while I'm about it, I ought perhaps to tell you something else, and that is not a very easy thing to say. She sipped at her glass, then she took a cigarette out of a gold case and began to smoke. I thought what an extremely unprepossessing woman she seemed. I wondered by what process of evolution a sweet, simple, fresh, clean young girl had become transformed into such a being. Rather to my surprise, and a good deal to my confusion, she showed an unexpected capacity to read my thoughts. You don't think I'm very much to look at, do you? I'm not. I never was. Time has not improved me, either outside or in. When I was young, I was very poor. For seven years, I was governess at sometimes twenty, sometimes thirty pounds a year, and lived upon my earnings, if you know what that means. I couldn't expect to get married on that, could I? And no one wanted me, anyhow. Though I wanted to marry very badly. I never remember the time when the one thing of which I dreamed was not to become some decent man's wife. It sounds funny, doesn't it? Isn't it a shocking confession to make? I wonder how many women would make it if they told the truth. She flicked the ash from her cigarette. I was beginning to wish that I had left her alone, that I had not embraced an opportunity of doing her good. When I was about thirty-eight, I came into a lot of money from an uncle, whom I don't remember to ever have seen. It turned to my head. I thought that money could do anything. I decided that now I would marry, and that I would marry just the sort of man I had always hoped I would do. You see, I had practically no knowledge of the world at all. How can a woman have, who has lived a life like mine? It took seven or eight years to make it clear that, in thinking because I had got money, I could marry the sort of man I wanted to, I was a fool. She smiled, and the whole of her face seemed to be dislocated to enable her to do so, and she beckoned the waiter to fill her glass. Men wanted to marry me, oh yes, but they were the kind of men whom I would not, as the saying is, have touched with the end of a barge pole. I sent them about their business. Whenever I saw a masculine creature to whose appearance I particularly objected, I knew that sooner or later he would ask me to be his wife, which was nice. No one ever did, so I made a fool of myself by every way of seeking consolation. I know they call me Gertrude here, and some equally silly name at other places which I favor regularly with my society. As a matter of fact, my name is Elizabeth. Since my mother died, when I was a girl, no one has ever called me by my Christian name. Think of that. The waiter brought her a fresh edition of that curious concoction. She put the glass to her lips. Don't suppose that my desire to marry grew less as my years grew more. That's a silly notion which some young girls seem to have. If I have to advertise for a husband, I'm going to have one before I die. So you can imagine what it means to me that Cecil Armitage has asked me to be his wife. I don't know that I'm particularly fond of him. I'm quite aware that he isn't at all fond of me. But he's so young. You don't know what a young man means to a woman like me. And so handsome, so beautiful, so healthy, so strong, so well-shaped. In my most sanguine moments, I never dreamed that I should have such a perfect specimen of a man for my very own. Of course, I shall have to pay for him. You needn't tell me that. My experience is that one always has to pay for anything that's worth having, and generally through the nose. I expect to have to pay through the nose for him. I've got more money than some people think, or, I believe, even that he suspects. I believe he thinks that I've got two or three thousand a year. I'm a rich woman, my dear. My money has gone on increasing and increasing, and now I don't spend a tenth of my income. I don't mean to let him know how much money I really have. He'd want too much if I did. I don't suppose for a moment that he isn't what I've seen described as shop-soiled. He wouldn't want to get money out of me at the price of making me his wife if he wasn't in a nasty hole. And bless you, I don't mind that. I've grown out of all my illusions. You can tell me all you know against him if you like, though I don't know how you found out. It will give me a pull over him when it comes to talking matters over a little later on. Nothing you can tell me to his discredit will surprise or hurt me in the least. 
I'm prepared to pay a good lump sum to get him clear of all his messes. Then I'm going to have one of the finest weddings ever seen in town. I've had a special sum set apart for it for years. Won't he make a picture of a bridegroom? I never dreamed that I should marry a man like him. Her cigarette being nearly consumed, she lit another, while I looked at her with, I have no doubt, amazement in my eyes and something like terror in my heart. I had never supposed that there were such women as she existing in the world who looked at what, to me, were sacred things from such a point of view. It seemed to me that I was listening to someone in a nightmare when she went on. There will be crowds of people at my wedding. You can always get crowds of people if you don't care what it costs to get them. And the papers will be full of it. The ladies' papers send their own lady reporter to weddings and give pages and pages and lots of illustrations, if you make it worth their while. It's all a question of making it worth their while. I tell you that with such a bridegroom I'm going to have the wedding of the season, and I do believe you thought you were going to choke me off by telling me that he is what you call a thief, you funny little thing. How many really honest men do you suppose there are if the truth were known? I had nightmares because of Miss Drawbridge that night, real nightmares. I had a broken and disturbed night absolutely on her account, and I got out of bed with the feeling strong upon me that, if I could possibly help it, that, to my mind, impossible marriage should not take place. I would do that unfortunate woman good in spite of herself. When I got down, almost the first person I saw was Mr. Cecil Armitage, looking so glum, so unhappy, so desperate, and, I could not but think, so ashamed of himself, that my resolution was strengthened, particularly when, as I was having my coffee and roll, the man Morgan, with the huge moustache, came and planted himself at my table and actually began to talk to me. I rather fancy, Miss Lee, that you are interested, shall I say, in our mutual friend Armitage? He seemed to have got my name off Pat, though where he had got it from I could not think. How he dared to address me I could not think either. I had never seen the man except the night before in the casino for about thirty seconds, and then at a distance. I did not answer him, I just looked at him. He went on. I may mention that I am Captain Morgan of the Fusiliers. I think it was the Fusiliers. I know it was some regiment, as if I cared. I'm an old friend of Mr. Armitage, and if you'd like, I can place you in possession of certain facts concerning that gentleman. I did not wait for him to finish. I got up and walked off, leaving my coffee and roll unfinished. I dare say, if I had stopped to finish them, he would have offered to sell me secrets about Mr. Armitage for five pounds apiece. I had an instinctive feeling that he was that kind of man. It is quite the thing at Dieppe, to go down to the quay to see the boat come in from New Haven. After déjeuner, as there was a pretty stormy sea, I thought I would go and see what the passengers looked like. As I was going, I fell in with Mrs. Curtis, one of the dearest old ladies I have ever met. She was an American, and so far as I could make out, had been doing Europe very much on her own, although she had a husband who everybody said was a millionaire. It seemed that he was coming to Dieppe by that very boat. I haven't seen him for years, she told me, for more than six months. He's so occupied with business that he hasn't time to spare for such a trifle as a wife, except between whiles. I understand that he's been making another million dollars. I wish he wouldn't. Every fresh million he makes only seems to fill him with the desire to make more. And as we've neither kith nor kin, and are just a lonely old couple, what we are going to do with all that money I can't think. It was a funny thing to say. But then people do say funny things, and there are such funny people, and so much of the world does seem queer. A few people have too much money, and so many have nothing like enough. It's all a jumble. When the boat drew up at the quay, she began to wave her handkerchief with all her might to an elderly gentleman who stood on the deck, and he began to wave his to her. So I drew off, in order that they might meet without being worried by a stranger. As I was strolling off the quay after most of the people had gone, a girl who had a small brown bag in her hand looked at me as if she wondered if I were very dreadful, and then, as if thinking that perhaps I was not, summoned up courage to speak to me. "'Can you tell me,' she asked, "'the name of a cheap and respectable hotel where—where where I can go alone?' I told her of one which I thought answered that description. I offered to show her where it was. She was quite the prettiest girl I had seen for ages, with a face, I thought, which had character and strength, 
as well as being good to look at. I fell in love with her at sight. She did not accept my offer to show her to the hotel, but she thanked me for giving her the name, and then, after favoring me with a further inspection, she made a remark which took me aback. I believe that in these foreign places, if they have been there any time, English people begin to know each other by names as well as by sight. Will you pardon my asking how long you've been here? I told her. Then came a staggering question. Can you tell me if there is now staying in Dieppe a gentleman named Cecil Armitage? I informed her, to the best of my knowledge and belief, there certainly was. I do not know what there was in my tone which she resented, but there seemed to be something, because barely thanking me, she gave me a cold little nod and walked on. That evening after dinner, I was sitting in the casino gardens when I saw a fragment of conversation between Mrs. Curtis and her newly returned husband, which both amazed and tickled me. I may say at once that, unless I blindfold myself, whether I want to or not, I cannot help seeing what people are saying whenever I look out of my eyes. I was rather in the shadow, and they were in the full glare of the electric light, so that I could not help seeing them. The old lady was speaking when I saw them first. "'So you've been making more money?' she said, and as she said it, she looked at her husband rather severely. "'I've been making a pile, Eleanor, a regular pile. I wish money wasn't so easy to make, or that I hadn't the knack of making it.' As he said it, he looked to me as if he groaned. In spite of the severe expression on the old lady's face, I dare say there was a twinkle in her eye. "'And what are you going to do with it now you've made it?' "'I'm hanged if I know. I'll be bothered if I do. It's of no use to me, and I suppose it's of no use to you, is it?' "'None whatever. I've all the money I ever likely to need, and rather more. It's piling up the bank as it is, so that I'm ashamed to look my bank book in the face. There's such a lot of it. I wonder you can't find some better occupation for your time than making money when you've got more than you want already.' The old gentleman, bending towards her, took her hand in his and I could see how his face softened as he touched her, and how hers softened, too. I tell you what I would like to be doing with some of that last money I've been making. I'd like to do someone a good turn. Do you think it would be easy? I don't mean just give it away to the first Tom or Dick or Harry who thinks he wants it. There are plenty of them. You don't happen to know of a man, woman, or child to whom a certain amount of money would mean the difference between heaven and hell? There must be such people in the world somewhere. Wouldn't you like to set some fellow, who wasn't quite a bad one, on his legs, or give some woman, who was very much in need of it, happiness, if money could do it? She did not answer, but I fancy she pressed the hand which was holding hers, and I stole off. I did not dare to stay longer, for fear I really should be intruding. I walked as far away from them as I could get, to the other end of the terrace, where I was a witness of quite a different scene. There was Mr. Armitage, standing close up against the sea-wall, looking out across the night-black sea, and somehow his attitude told me that it could not be blacker than his mood. I paused a little distance from him and sat on the wall itself. I wondered how long he would stay. I did not wish to intrude. I had nearly been intruding at the other end, but I did not wish to go. I had a right to be somewhere. After a while he turned, and I thought he was going. Then out of the darkness there came... I knew no more than he did from where, the figure of a woman. When she saw him, she stopped, and he stopped also. There was a lamp close to the seawall which let me see their faces, and how at the sight of each other they changed. Then I saw each pair of lips form at the same moment a Christian name. Cecil! Marjorie! And in an instant they were in each other's arms. I had to stop and look at them, because this was the girl I had met on the quay to whom I had lost my heart. They were silent for quite a perceptible period, as if each was content to know that the other was there. Then, as he held her at arm's length, I saw him ask her, Marjorie, how did you come to be here? And I saw her answer, with the light of love all over her, I came for you. For me? Good God! The hands which had held her fell to his sides, he seemed to stagger, as if he had been dealt a blow. Marjorie, you shouldn't have come. I had to come. I couldn't help coming. I couldn't stay away. I thought you might want me. Want you? As if there's ever likely to be a time when I don't want you? I was half beside myself for want of you then. She moved forward, 
He put up his hands as if to stop her. You mustn't, you mustn't. He drew himself a little more erect. Marjorie, I'm going to be married. There was a look on her face as if she were bracing herself to bear. Is that true? Is it quite, quite certain that you're going to be married? It's either that or jail. Are you sure, perfectly sure? Absolutely. Clark is here. He wants his money. He'll take a warrant out if he doesn't get it soon. I can only get it from her. There was such an accent on the pronoun. I knew it from the look which was on his face. I could see she winced. I know. I've heard all about her. I don't know what to advise you to do. You know you will be committing a great sin if you marry her. I noticed that both parties seemed to avoid mentioning her by name. I know you, Cecil, your weakness and your strength. I do not think you will ever cease to love me. I am as sure of that as that you and I are standing here. It's the only thing of which I am sure. You are part and parcel of my life, of my very being. That being so, do you think you ought to marry her, even to save yourself? It's not only to save myself, it's to save you. If I don't marry her, I shall be sent to jail. There's no alternative. Then when I come out, as likely as not, I shall marry you. Well, what then? The smile which lighted up her face was one which, my instinct told me, only comes to the woman who holds the world well lost for love. Her question made him flame into anger. What then? Everything then. Marjorie, you shan't marry a jailbird. You shall not. If I'm to be branded as a felon, I'll never carry on the brand to you and to our children. Never. Never. As God is my witness, you shall not be a felon's wife. So the thing resolves itself into this. If I don't marry this woman, I shall become a jailbird. Clark will make me one. Then you'll be such a temptation to me, Marjorie. I've been tempted once and I've fallen. But what was that temptation compared to you? I'll dare not risk it. So it's goodbye, Marjorie. I've no right to kiss you. The mere thought of your lips against mine drives me mad. I'm going, I'm going to marry that woman, and I'm going to her now. And apparently he went. He positively ran. And the girl never turned even to follow him with her eyes, but remained stock still where he had left her. Then did as he had done, looked out across the night black sea. I sat still and watched her till I could bear it no longer, then I went to her and said, Will you come with me, please, while I speak to some friends? She glanced at me as she might have done at a ghost. I do not think she quite realized that I was a creature of flesh and blood. So I reached out and took her by the hand and said to her again, I, I think I can help you if you'll come with me while I speak to some friends. She did not utter a sound or try to. I think her heart was broken. She just let me take her by the hand and lead her where I would. She moved as if she were a docile child. I saw in the distance that Mr. and Mrs. Curtis were still where I had left them, so I placed her on a chair within sight, and I said, as if I had been speaking to a child, Sit there, please, and don't move. In a few minutes I hope I'll be able to come to you again with some good news. She sat down with meek and heart-rending obedience. She was such a picture of misery I could have cried, but I bore up till I got to Mr. and Mrs. Curtis, even though I believed there was something moist in the corner of my eye. I got to the heart of my subject without any sort of preamble. You know, Mrs. Curtis, I told you I was a teacher of the deaf and dumb, and that I could tell what people are saying by watching their lips? Of course you did, my dear. This is my husband, who has just come to me from New York City. Fred, this is Miss Judith Lee, of whom I was speaking to you. She's a very wonderful young woman, and I hope she's going to be my very dear friend. I did not wait for Mr. Curtis to speak. I just went on. I could see he was beginning to look at me with a sort of wonder. I just saw you and Mr. Curtis talking, and I saw him say to you that with some of the money he had just been making, he would like to set some fellow, who wasn't quite a bad one, on his legs, and give some woman, who was very much in need of it, happiness. Well, I know just a pair, and if he meant it, I can give him a chance of doing right now exactly what he said he wanted to do. They looked at me, and they looked at each other, which I did not wonder at. I was so hot and eager, so very much in earnest. With that girl sitting there right in my line of vision, I felt that I had got to take these people's hearts by storm, and I was not going to stick at a trifle in doing it. 
Mr. Curtis asked, with something in his voice which made me wonder if he was quizzing me, but I did not care if he was. Who is your deserving couple, Miss Lee? Then I told him all about it, in just as few words as I could, and as close to the point as I could get them. It did me good to see how quick he was at getting my meaning. I had heard a deal about American quickness. I saw an example of it then. I believe that before I had finished, he understood it all. Just got at what I wanted him to get. The quizzical note was still in his voice when he made what, from an Englishman, would have seemed a simply amazing speech, but which seemed to come quite naturally from him. If fifty thousand dollars, that is, ten thousand pounds sterling, would do for this lady and gentleman what you want to do, you can have the cash tonight on one condition, Miss Lee, that you don't say from whom it comes. You're to regard that as your secret and mine. In about three minutes, I went tearing off after Mr. Armitage. I found him sitting at a table in a corner of the restaurant, a suspicious-looking glass in front of him, and a most dismal expression on his face. Just as I reached him, I saw Mr. Clark coming in at the other end, but I paid no attention to him. Mr. Armitage, I want you to come with me at once on business, which is to you almost a matter of life and death. He looked at me as if amazed, which it was not odd. I fancy I seemed pretty excited, and my acquaintance with him was of the slightest. But I gave him no chance to talk. Almost before he knew it, I was sailing down the room with him at my side. We encountered Mr. Clark, who tried to stop us. Armitage, there's something which I've got to say to you. I gave him no chance either. Then you'll have to have something. Mr. Armitage has business which won't permit of an instant's delay. And I bore that young man right past him. I dare say they both of them thought I was mad. I was conscious that Mr. Clark was looking after us as if he would like to bite me, but did not dare. He did not even dare to try to speak to Mr. Armitage again. I believe Mr. Armitage did ask some questions, but he got no answers. I took him at such a pace to my hotel that he had not time to ask many. I had arranged with Mrs. Curtis that she should carry off the girl to her private sitting room. As I opened the door with a young gentleman in tow, she came out and she slipped into my hand what I knew to be a wad of notes. Then I showed Mr. Armitage into the room, and when he saw the girl and the girl saw him, their faces were a study. Off I went without any preamble, as hard as I could to the point. I have no time to waste in explanations, at least not now. I merely want you to understand that owing to circumstances over which I have practically no control, I know all about you, and that's all, I believe, Mr. Armitage, that you have some regard for this young lady, whose name I don't happen to know, except that it's Marjorie. Is it correct that you have a regard for her? The bewildered look with which that young man regarded me, as if he wondered if something had happened to the foundations of the world. I have only the pleasure of knowing you very slightly, Miss Lee. I'm afraid I don't understand. I stopped the flow of his eloquence with a wave of my hand. We shall be able to talk about all that later. In the meanwhile, may I ask you to inform me if you have a regard for this young lady? You'll find it worth your while to just say yes or no. I know you are supposed to be engaged to Miss Drawbridge, but that doesn't matter. Will you please answer my question? I don't know what you intend to make of the information, but I have no objection, since you appear to know already, to telling you that Miss Stainer is dearer to me than anything else in the world. I knew it, but I preferred to get the fact from you. Without thrusting myself too much upon your confidence, may I ask Miss Stainer, I should prefer to call you Marjorie, but as it seems your name is Stainer, please call me Marjorie, she murmured, just murmured. I could see the words better than I could hear them. May I ask, Marjorie, if you have in the least degree any feeling of the same kind for Mr. Armitage? She did not answer. She looked at me. I don't know what she saw in my face, but she seemed to see something which induced her to draw close and take my right hand in both of hers, and that was all. But I understood, as I immediately made clear. That being the case, it is evidently desirable that you should be married at the earliest possible moment. You should have seen their faces. And a friend has placed funds at my disposal which will enable you to do so. Please don't speak, not yet. Mr. Armitage, you've been doing something disgraceful. I'm ashamed of you. 
How much do you owe that man Clark? That bewildered look on his face was increasing. He seemed all eyes. How do you know I owe him anything? Has he been telling you? He has not, and I'm the only one who is to ask questions. You can ask all you like later on, but at present, please content yourself with answering mine. How much money do you owe that objectionable Clark person? It was eight hundred, but now he makes it out to be a thousand. I did not ask what hold that man had over him, not out loud, but I dare say the question was formulated in my brain. I cannot explain how it was, but he seemed to get the answer in his eyes, or somewhere. He's got a forged acceptance, and he gave me such cold shivers down my back that I went hurrying on. Mr. Clark will be paid his thousand pounds, and you will sit down at that table and write on that sheet of paper a list of the monies you owe. They will all be paid out of the fund which I have at my disposal. Now, do not ask questions, but do as you're told. Yes, it is a miracle if you like to think it so. It's the miracle which is going to be the making of you. Now sit down and write. He sat down and wrote. It took him some minutes. A young gentleman cannot be expected to set down all he owes in an instant. I dare say there were omissions in that list of his when it was finished, though it came to a nice little total as it was. That's a very great deal of money, I told him when I glanced at it. Nearly three thousand pounds. It's dreadful that a young man who is practically penniless should owe all that. If by a miraculous interposition it is paid, is this sort of thing going to recur? Wait before you answer. Will you leave Dieppe tonight by the boat which starts at half-past one? Miss Stainer will leave also in charge of a lady who is a very dear friend of mine. You will go to London. There you will obtain a marriage license, and the day after tomorrow, which will be Thursday, you will be married. Oh! Marjorie gasped. I had to put an arm round her waist to hold her steady. You will book two berths by the boat which starts from New York on Sunday. On your arrival there, employment will be found for you, and you will be provided with funds which will enable you to live until your salary falls due. The future will be in your own hands. Live decently, keep out of debt, work like an honest man should do who has given hostages to fortune, and there's no reason I know of why you shouldn't be the happiest couple in the world, because you are starting with a very valuable capital your love for each other. Now, Marjorie, you're not to do that. The girl, having come close to me, had laid her head against my breast and was crying. I had to comfort her. Now, my dear, you must keep your head. You mustn't give way. There are heaps of things you must do. Tomorrow you must buy your trousseau and all sorts of things you will have to have. And now, Marjorie, if you will keep on crying, you'll make me cry too, you will, and I won't. And I did not cry. I never do. I look upon crying as an absurd feminine weakness, and if I did, it was nothing to speak of. Everything happened as I intended. They left by the early morning boat. Mr. Armitage was so shamefaced. He was still bewildered, even as the boat was starting. I believe he had a sort of feeling that his brains were addled. Mrs. Curtis shared a cabin with the girl, and Mr. Curtis stayed behind with me. The next morning I interviewed Mr. Clark. I sent for him to Mr. Curtis's waiting room, and he came. Mr. Curtis was present to see that everything was fair. I began at the visitor before his nose was well inside the door. I did have such an objection to the man. Mr. Clark, I presume you're aware that you have placed yourself in a very serious position? He glared at me as if he wondered who I was. Then he looked at Mr. Curtis, and perhaps that kept him from saying some of the things he would have liked to say. You have in your pocket a forged bill of acceptance which you received, knowing well it to be forged, and which you have used for the purpose of extorting blackmail. I need not tell a person of your experience that by doing so you have placed yourself within the reach of the criminal law. He began to bluster. Who the deuce are you, and what do you mean by talking to me like this? Mr. Armitage has instructed me to act on his behalf. I laid some notes on the table. This is the money he owes you. You'll give me the bill you hold, and a quittance in full of all the claims you have against him. The man made quite a pretty little scene, or rather he tried to, because a few remarks from Mr. Curtis brought him to before he had really got under way. When he left that room, he had got his money, and I had the bill and the quittance and everything I wanted. Then I interviewed Miss Drawbridge. I found her in the courtyard of the hotel, 
having what she called her aperitif. As always, I came to the point with her at once. Miss Drawbridge, Mr. Armitage wishes me to tell you that the engagement which he has entered into with you is at an end. As you made it clear to me that there was no sentiment about the matter, I am sure you'll excuse my treating it as a business proposition, which is off. She did not seem to mind my talking to her like that in the very least. She was a most extraordinary woman. Instead of my taking her aback, she took me. That's all right. I've been turning matters over in my mind, and I think myself that it would be better to cut the loss. Between ourselves, I've almost decided to marry Captain Morgan. He's a gentleman I've known for some considerable period. Every time I meet him, he asks me to marry him, and I think, on the whole, he will suit me better than Cecil Armitage. He's more my sort. I believe my breath failed me. The rapidity with which she adjusted herself to fresh matrimonial prospects was a trifle startling. I saw that the person whom she called Captain Morgan was coming out of the hotel. You were so kind as to lend Mr. Armitage a hundred and fifty pounds, which he returns, and for which he thanks you. I think you'll find that correct. I laid a hundred and fifty pounds in banknotes on the table and tore off. Captain Morgan was within a yard or two. I left with Mr. Curtis by the afternoon boat for London. The next day that affectionate pair were married. Mr. Curtis gave the bride away, and I was her bridesmaid. Afterwards we had quite a festive time with Mr. and Mrs. Curtis. On the Saturday, Cecil and Marjorie sailed. I doubt if they had realized the situation even then. I believe they still thought it was a miracle, and it was. It was a miracle which materialized and, if I may mix my metaphors, and I shall if I choose, bore fruit and flourished. Mr. Curtis, that miracle worker, gave Cecil a post in his own business, a small one at first, but which rapidly grew in importance. Cecil Armitage proved himself to be an excellent man. Hard-headed, shrewd Mr. Curtis both trusts and likes him. Marjorie wrote me only the other day that she and Cecil were the happiest pair in the United States of America. That seems a tall order. I hope there are lots of couples who are as happy as they are, but they are happy. The same mail brought me a letter from Mrs. Curtis. She said she hoped to see me before very long with a husband of my own. She never, never will. Never, never, never. End of chapter 5 End of Judith Lee Pages from Her Life by Richard Marsh